Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. This is part three of 313 Carl Drive. If you have not listened to part one and part two, please go back and listen to part one, then part two. We are just picking up where we left off from the end of part two. While in prison, David Hendricks had been writing to Pat Miller, a divorced mother of three, who lived in Toledo, Ohio. In August of 1987, she first visited David at Menard. By May of 1988, she had agreed to marry him. Pat was an attractive, petite brunette who was four years older than Hendricks. The warden, however, refused permission saying marriage could only frustrate Hendricks because there was no prospect he would ever be freed. Pat Miller moved with her two youngest children to a remote farmhouse about four miles from the prison and established Faith Incorporated, which stood for Friends Against Injustice to Hendricks. Hendricks submitted his request to marry again sometime later and was given the warden's approval. The wedding was scheduled for December 20th, 1988. Soon after, there was an announcement that the ruling would be given on December 21st. The wedding date stayed set for the 20th despite this. David was dressed in prison blues and Pat was in a pink dress. The two were wed in a prison office. Pat brought her two youngest children with her. David's parents and his sister Bonnie were also there as well as Nadine Palmer. The next morning, the 21st, Illinois Supreme Court upheld the conviction by a vote of four to two. To sum it up, the prosecution submitted that Hendricks had the children go to bed, and when they were asleep, he murdered them and then cleaned himself up. Then, for some unknown reason, left the house at 9 p.m. and returned and waited for his wife to come home and fall asleep. He then killed her, staged the burglary, and left on an alibi trip to Wisconsin. Defense pointed out that the Hendricks children were last seen alive on the street at 8.15 p.m. This, of course, is from witnesses, and as true crime people, we know that witnesses' accounts are sometimes not accurate, even when they are trying to be. But then, as the defense states, if they were seen at 8.15, they were unlikely cleaned up in bed and fast asleep by 9 p.m. There were no defensive wounds, so they had to be asleep when they were attacked. But then you could twist it back and think about the fact that the young man who saw Hendricks at 9 p.m. was mistaken. He, too, was a witness, and while with good intentions and trying to be helpful, could have been mistaken. If this was the case, Hendricks would have had more time for the kids to fall asleep and to clean up before his wife got home. The flip side to this whole scenario, however, is that Susan, being described as a good mother, would be unlikely to go to bed without checking on her children, most probably giving them a kiss goodnight. Why, though, did Hendricks call his wife at 5.31 p.m., one minute after his wife was due at the Palmer's for dinner? He called her at the home at this time. Hendricks said he did not know for sure what time his family was due there. 
It was possible that he didn't know. But if he did know, then he could have just been trying to find out if the bodies had been found yet. If not, he could continue to call others to see. He stopped at a phone booth and called the Kramer's home when he was about 100 miles from home. Why didn't he call his in-laws home or his own home at that point? Wouldn't that have been the most logical calls first? At that point, he hadn't tried to reach his wife at home for over two hours and hadn't talked to the Palmers for over an hour and a half. When he was 20 minutes from home, he stopped and exercised. He said this was so that he could wake up and stay awake driving. Wasn't he worried, and didn't the adrenaline of that keep him awake? Why did he need to stop and wake up only 20 minutes from home? Or did he need to stop and gather himself to think how he would react when told of the murders? There is always the possibility that this was perpetrated by a stranger or strangers, but there is not a lot that points to this. September 29, 1989, the Illinois Supreme Court decided to take a second look at the Hendricks case. It was the first time in many years, perhaps several decades, that the court approved a petition to rehear a non-death penalty case. Hendricks accused John Lewis, his former brother-in-law, of the murders. I am convinced I know why he did it. Hendricks wrote that Lewis never felt accepted by his wife Martha's family. Lewis hated all members of the Plymouth Brethren, but mostly his wife's sister Susan. The night of the murders, Susan went to a baby shower. Martha was not invited, and she cried about this. This, according to Hendricks, made John angry. Hendricks wrote that Lewis was familiar with the family home, knew there was an axe in the garage because he had borrowed it before. He also had a key to the house. John and Martha had watched the children one weekend while they went away together alone. Most of Hendricks' accusations were based on new statements from Martha Lewis, whose seven-year marriage to John had ended six months earlier. In her statement to police after the murders, Martha had confirmed John's account of being home with her the entire night the killings occurred. Now, in interviews with the media from her home in Oregon, Martha changed her story. She claimed Lewis had left their house at 10 p.m. that night, saying he was going to lift weights. She also described her ex-husband as mentally unstable. Lewis, who was employed as an ambulance attendant near San Francisco, reacted calmly to the news that Hendricks had named him in court documents. He denied the allegations, suggesting Martha's statement was rooted in some temporary bitterness over the divorce. I'm dumbfounded, he said. I was visited by two of David's investigators, and I told them all I can remember. It wasn't until after the divorce that they started coming after me. Ron Dozier, who is now an associate judge instead of a prosecutor, dismissed Hendricks' new allegation. David Hendricks is still trying to convince everyone he is innocent. He doesn't have a whole lot else to do. His request for a new hearing was granted. Richard McLeese represented Hendricks in the new hearing. The experienced trial judge stated on the record that the evidence did not persuade him of Mr. Hendricks' guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, McLeese said. 
In other words, had this been a bench trial, Mr. Hendricks would have been acquitted. The jury, on the other hand, convicted him. And I submit that the explanation for that different result is that the trial court judge was able to see through this evidence and was able, in a sense, put it in its place, while the inexperienced jurors, who were given no instruction on the matter, were unable to do so. Richard London, who was representing the state, said that Judge Boehner's sentencing remarks needed to be reviewed in proper context. The judge specifically stated on the record that evidence was sufficient to go to jury. He believed the jury was a good jury and made the correct decision, and he personally believed the defendant probably committed the crime. Only in the context of discussing the ultimate penalty, a sentence of death, did the judge feel a further analysis was necessary. Only then did the judge make the further comment that he was not convinced in his heart, beyond a reasonable doubt, of the defendant's guilt. Perhaps the judge would like to take back the exact wording. Perhaps the judge would like to say something like this. To sentence someone to death, I have to be 100% sure and not use the legal term reasonable doubt. London concluded. July 3, 1990, the Supreme Court, by a vote of six to nothing, reversed itself and overturned Hendrick's conviction and life sentence. Ruling testimony about the models and Hendrick's religion was unfairly prejudicial. The court left it up to McLean County prosecutors to determine whether Hendrick's would be retried. In December, after a review, the special prosecutor announced Hendricks would be tried a second time. The evidence as to time of death established by the prosecution clearly places the defendant at home when the victims were brutally murdered, Murphy said in a written statement. The defense's evidence suggests the time of death for the victims cannot be determined so narrowly. Such conflicts in the evidence present a question of disputed fact. In our legal system, the members of the jury are called to be judges of that fact. Jury selection was scheduled for February 4th. During the pretrial motions, the defense asked to have the theory heard that Hendrick's former brother-in-law may have committed the murders. The prosecution wanted to have more models testify, and the prosecution had also found out about David writing letters to a female inmate with sexual content in them. He had been passing them to the female inmate at, bu at Bible study classes. Judge Boehner did not read the letters, and he ruled them irrelevant to the murder case and inadmissible. He also said there was no basis for the John Lewis theory, so there would be no testimony on that. There was, however, someone new testifying. Danny Wayne Stark, a man who had done time with David and Menard, he had heard on the radio about the new Hendricks trial, and he made contact saying he had some useful information for the prosecution. He passed a lie detector test on this. Stark had been disabled by a shotgun blast to the knee eight years earlier while being arrested. He was 44 years old, serving an eight-year sentence at Menard for possession of stolen property when he met Hendricks. 
Hendricks told Stark that a serial killer had murdered his family and asked if Starks had any input on how he could win his freedom. They talked about women, and Hendricks did admit he had some girlfriends, but said he was sure none of them had killed his family. They talked more about how he could get out. Finally, Stark said, Hendricks told him that he did it, and how he did it, so that he could help him figure out someone else that he could put the blame on. He said nobody's seen him do it. A lot of it had to do with his family. He was running around on his wife, living a different lifestyle. His wife had found out about it. He was really worried about his father finding out. To him, that was something serious. He said divorce would ruin him. Stark continued. David said he had gotten married early, too young. All of a sudden he had a family. He came into money and found himself stuck in a situation he couldn't deal with. He said his wife was a plain woman, small-breasted. Stark told the courtroom that Hendricks told him that he got an axe from the garage and a butcher knife from the kitchen and killed his wife and children. He said he knocked them out with the axe and then chopped them up. He said he covered their heads up first, and he said killing his son was the hardest thing he ever had to do. Stark said Hendricks told him he washed the knife in the bathroom. I told him that was a stupid thing to do. He said that he was very naive about the law at that point, and he had never had any run-ins with the law. Stark said Hendricks' revelations to him were probably made in mid to late 1986, and that when he recently told police about them, he hadn't expected he would have to testify. Stark testified that there was no deal between him and the police or prosecution for his testimony. He had not been promised anything. The defense called three Menard inmates to the stand, and they stated that Hendricks had maintained his innocence throughout. One of these inmates said that Starks was dishonest and could not be trusted. The decision was made for David Hendricks to not testify in his defense. It was decided that he had already done so in the original trial, and that statement of innocence had already been read to the jury. They didn't think he could add any more. After 10 hours of deliberations, the jury announced they had reached a decision. Judge Boehner read aloud. The verdicts of the jury read as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, David James Hendricks, not guilty. Cheers and applause came from David's family and supporters. David Hendricks was released to his new wife and stepchildren waiting for him. In the jury deliberation room, a sheriff's deputy was clearing away anything left behind by the jury. One 3 by 5 note read, Circumstantial Evidence. It is almost 36 years since the murders took place. Since then, David Hendricks became a millionaire again, and from the last I could find, has been married four times. A little over a year after David was released from prison, he and Pat divorced. They had moved to Toledo after he got out, and her children had even taken his name. They separated and tried to reconcile once, but it didn't work out. Hendricks said adjusting to the outside world again was much harder than he thought it would be. He did set up a prosthetics and orthotics patient care practice in Toledo, and it was a success. He did tell members of the medical community about his legal past. 
He bought a Porsche and a half ownership of a small aircraft. His third wife was a 37-year-old divorce secretary, Brenda Page. They married in July of 1994 and lasted only 11 months. After that, he moved to Tampa. He had sold his business in Toledo. He stayed in Atlanta for a year where he started a new orthotic business, Hope Orthopedic. He then moved the business to Orlando for 10 years and then sold Hope Orthopedic at a profit. He did some more house flipping after that and made money doing that as well. He met his current wife, Gazelle, through an online Filipino matchmaking service. He was 46 and Gazelle 21. He brought her to the U.S. to marry. They now have two small children. In 1991, Hal Jennings, defense attorney for David Hendricks, married one of Hendricks' models, Kathy Harper. In 1992, Hendricks' model, Cindy Segabiondo, and her husband purchased the home at 313 Carl Drive, where the murders occurred. They lived there until 2001. Evidence from Hendricks' crime scene remains at the Bloomington Police Evidence Vault. The case is officially considered inactive slash closed. With all David Hendricks' financial resources, it is surprising that he doesn't get a private investigation into the murders of his wife and children. The original investigators and prosecutors, all now retired, have been unanimous that David already knows who killed them and that someone was a person who was once in prison and now has been freed. David Hendricks says on his website that he did hire a private investigator when he was in prison. He said he paid a private investigator to interview his ex-brother-in-law, and what he said convinced David that he did it. When police went to question him about it, the brother-in-law denied it. So David said because he got no further help from law enforcement on that, the investigation stopped. This is an interesting aside that also uh, clicks in with our history for dessert. In the year 1900, a rural area 30 miles west of Bloomington, a member of a conservative Christian group known as the New Omish, that's O-M-I-S-H, not Amish, but Omish. The New Omish, he murdered his wife and three young children. Samuel Moser, aged 30, claimed he sent them to heaven because he had been shunned by his church. He was not allowed to eat meals with his family in his own home. He first shot his wife in the head, then killed his children. He was arrested in Salt Lake City after fleeing and attempting suicide. He was brought back to Illinois and found guilty. Given a 33-year sentence, he later hanged himself. One of his children was named Benjamin, just like Benjamin Hendricks. He was only five years old. These are some posts that I found on Reddit, and I'm not sure what you think of the site. I have not had that much experience with it. But while I was researching the case, I came upon these, and I thought they were kind of interesting. So, um, you know, keep in mind, these are posts by people that can be anonymous on uh, Reddit. And um, all of them are from approximately a year ago or so. 
I'm going to read them just as they are written. Uh, not going to uh, try to edit them. Not going to try to correct them as I think they might be, uh, because I don't want to change the meaning in way in the way that they might have wanted uh, it to come out. So here's the first one for the posts on Reddit about the David Hendricks case. Not too long after he was released from prison, he moved into my suburban neighborhood with his then wife. He was quiet and did not partake in the activities that were going on, and nobody at the time knew who he was. One day, he and his wife got into a huge blowout fight in their driveway, where a lot of curse words were used, and it riled up some of the uptight neighbors. They, of course, did some digging and discovered who he was, and it was not pretty. To his guilt, I have read about his case, and I find it hard to believe anyone else would have motive. There have been no similar cases that would suggest it was a serial killer. And the probability of robbers murdering young children for very little is slim. He was not a nice guy, and from what I saw that day of his posture and what he was saying to his wife, I have zero doubt that he was the one to do it. Here's the next one. I'm from Bloomington, Illinois, and my mom knows multiple women who have met him and said that he was a complete creep and gave them a sick feeling in their stomachs. He definitely is guilty. Another one from just over a year ago. The slaying seems so personal. This is total conjecture, but for some reason, I feel like this man's facade hides some serious rage. I feel like he did it. This is complete conjecture on my part. Now this one um, is commenting about a show and apparently there was a show out about a year ago or so. Um, I didn't see it and I cannot find where, um, where anyone is able to view it. So I have no idea. I really did try to find it, of course. Um, so I never saw the show. Perhaps you have. Um, but this person is commenting apparently on the show. So they say, I watched the same show. The religion was very strict and sounds sort of cultish. It reminded me of Scientology the little I heard about it. You start as followers and get to work your way up. And he was almost at master level, whatever that means. But it's apparently the highest you can go. A nobody came out and said it. But the show keeps showing newspapers from when the crime happened and during the trial. Twice I saw headlines referring to the fact that he admitted to an affair. As for the models, three were interviewed for the show, all with basically the same story and all testified against him at the first trial. He apparently became obsessed with one model. He said he tried kissing her and fondled her exposed breast that fell out during a scuffle. He had them wear a gown like patients so he could measure them in that. He started following her, calling her, showing up at her job, posting inappropriate pictures of her around town, etc. She had to move, so he didn't know where she lived. Not long after that, his family was murdered. There's another post. My mom was a school bus driver during this time and said that his idea that someone came off the highway was absurd. The location of his house would have made it a very odd choice for a killer. My instinct was actually that he had someone else commit the crime. I think something got lost in translation with his son. I think he wanted his son spared, but the hired killer instead brutally killed the son. It makes sense to me why he responded, 
even Benji? Like that was the only surprise to him. That's the end of part three for 313 Carl Drive. It's a tough case, very sad. The wife and the three children, they didn't deserve that, however it happened. One of the main sources used for this podcast was uh, the book Reasonable Doubt by Steve Vogel. Uh, The full title, the book Reasonable Doubt, A Shocking Story of Lust and Murder in the American Heartland by Steve Vogel, V-O-G-E-L. Newspaper articles that I've used uh, in research. is The first one is from Chicago Tribune article by Robert Instead, E-N-S-T-A-D, his last name, January 14th, 1985, Chicago Tribune article called Family Killer's Profile, A Deadly Paradox. Another good Chicago Tribune article used in research was by Wes Smith called Upright Dad or Axe Murderer, November 12th, 1989. Uh, Some websites that I used was history.com, This Day in History, Hendrick's Family is Brutally Murdered. And Wikipedia, the wikipedia.org, David Hendricks. And a court website, law.justia.com. The case, People versus Hendricks, 1990. Thank you again for listening to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. I really appreciate you. And if you're feeling generous and have some time, please uh, give me a five-star, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts.